Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.asn.au. Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see you here this Sunday. My name is Jordan, and I will be preaching today, and my sermon is entitled Complacency and God's Standards. Would you please close your eyes and bow your heads? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are alive and you are living, and so is your words. And so as we come before you this morning, Lord, would you humble our hearts, would you open our eyes to see you and open our ears to hear from you? And Lord, would you use me to speak faithfully and truthfully, in accordance with your words. For not my will, Jesus, but yours be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen. Well, church, I have been in review uh, the past couple of weeks, and by that I mean literally. Uh, So there's been about nine or ten people who were given a a form to fill in and rate me from uh, a scale of one to five and various different attributes of leadership uh, and character attributes, and, and Braden also gave me uh, a form to fill in myself, which was interesting, so I had to do some self-reflecting and self-assessments. Um, and so it got me thinking about the, the year overall here at Lakeside and with youth ministry and uh, reviewing youth group, and I think just overall I want to say I'm just so thankful and grateful to the Lord for being here, and it's been a real joy uh, to be a part of it. But it did lead me to a question which is, how do you measure a good youth ministry? Uh, is, it, is it population? Is it attendance? So if we're getting you know, 20, 30 kids, it's a good night. If we're hitting 50, amazing. If it's 100, it's a miracle, right? Um, or is it, is it the youth leaders? Uh, if I have solid, reliable, trusted youth leaders, um, if I have a one to three, one to four ratio of youth leaders to kids, that's amazing, is that good? Uh, or is it positive feedback from parents and parents of the children that are part of the youth group? because they're raising these kids? Uh, or is it the, the feedback and positive comments from elders and the pastors of the church? Uh, so something I was thinking about, and in the same way, from what we see here in Amos, in chapter 7, God is reviewing Israel. And so the question we want to ask is, what is God's standards? And you would have heard Alicia read out, uh, there is a plumb line that God is using, this is my homemade plumb line. I uh, can't guarantee how accurate it is. And a plumb line basically is a tool used in ancient times, put over a line so you would see how straight or how not straight the wall is. Uh, but I feel like I'm jumping straight into the main course, church, and I've skipped the entree. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's reel it back in and start with a little bit of context. Uh, Amos is set in 750 BC before Christ has come, and at this time, Israel is a divided kingdom. So after Solomon has died, you have the northern uh, kingdom, Israel, and the south is Judah. And so Amos actually is from uh, Judah. He's from a small town called Tekoa. Uh, but God calls him out from where he lives to go all the way up to Israel and to prophesy in Israel. And so he follows that call. Yes, he is a prophet, uh, but he's a former shepherd and a sycamore fig tree carer. So he's not this trained academic. In fact, he's actually very proud um, of his, his background. He says in Amos 
7.14, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet. Um, and yet he goes and follows God's call. Israel is at peace during this time, so there is no war. But just about 30 years later, uh, less than 30 years later, in 721 BC, it is conquered by Assyria. And important to note is Israel at this time is worshipping false gods, false idols. Um, there are altars and temples at Bethel and Gilgal, just to name a few. And just a reminder, in terms of Old Testament prophets, the key message of all prophets is there is a warning, right, a call to repentance, to turn away from their sin, and thus glorify God. And Amos follows this pattern in the same way as well. I figured we should define, define complacency as well, since that's what we are talking about today. And so a definition is a feeling of smug or uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. Um, I don't like long sentences, so I sort of paraphrase it. And in my words, it basically means carelessness from pride. That's what complacency is, carelessness from pride. So we are going to go through these nine verses. And if you notice, there's three different visions. Uh, the first one is the vision about the locusts. And in verse one, it reads, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. And so what do we see here? Locusts are, the vision is a vision of death. Uh, Israel deserves death, but God spares. Uh, in the Bible, where else do we see Locusts and locust plagues. Well, in Exodus 10, 15, um, in Moses' time. And this is actually referenced in Amos 4, verse 10, which reads in Exodus, Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit and the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. So very clearly we get a picture of imminent death. And yet, Amos intervenes and Israel is saved. The second vision is about fire. And in verse 4, it says, This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. I dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the, Lord, the Sovereign Lord said. And where do we see destroying fire? Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is also referenced in Amos 4.11. Genesis 19 says, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. So in these first two visions, in both visions, Israel faces death. Amos is a mediator and God postpones judgment. And so Amos here can be seen as a Christ figure, right, who intercedes for Israel on their behalf. And what does this tell us? That God plans, God's plan gives humanity time to repent and glorify Jesus Christ. So God shows mercy. God is merciful. And not in a, in a human kind of way. Uh, human love and, and human mercy can be, be good, but it is not perfect. God is merciful in a way that is all-encompassing, that is 
immeasurable, right? God actually is mercy. Uh, one of the things that I learned that is God is his attributes, and his attributes are himself. So God isn't just merciful. God is actual perfect mercy. And so the third vision in verse 7 to 8 This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? Plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. And I was reading these verses, I thought, interesting, we saw a pattern, right? Vision one, vision two. What's Amos doing? Is he asleep in this part of the story? Like, why doesn't he intercede? But you have to understand that this instrument, this tool, the plumb line, isn't used for just pure, utter destruction. It's not a, a wrecking ball that comes in. No, you, a, a builder uses a plumb line. Why? To measure a wall if it's straight or if it's crooked. Because a crooked wall is not stable. A crooked wall will eventually fall, and it must be rebuilt. Um, surprisingly, there's not a lot of... When you, when you Google um, crooked walls into Google, like hardly anything comes up. So this is all I got, someone's random driveway. Um, but you can kind of see with your eyes, even with your eyes in, in the audience today, it is, it, you know, over time that probably will fall over and will, will be destroyed. But a crooked wall is not stable, and thus it must be rebuilt. And so a good builder is one who will destroy a crooked wall and will rebuild a new one. As seen in Nehemiah 2, verse 17 to 18. This is a real historical story. Uh, Nehemiah says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Uh, But the thing about rebuilding walls is many people will oppose them. And by this I mean that followers of Jesus will will be persecuted by unbelievers. And this happened in the same way to Nehemiah as well, in chapter 4. It says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet his threat. And so we know and that we see that in this world, when we proclaim the gospel to others and we point out, hey, actually, you know, this wall, this world, it's actually crooked. It actually needs to be rebuilt. People are not going to be happy. People will be hateful. People may even try and persecute, kill you. But what are we supposed to do? What does verse 9 says? The first thing, we pray to our God. But we pray to our God. Never underestimate the power of prayer and what God can do. And we defend. Not with guns and with swords and with knives, not with violence, but we are to defend the gospel, not to, let, not to just stand by and let people slander and mock the Lord, um, but to, to share with them and to teach them. Um, let, me, let me put it slightly differently. So, never actually done an object lesson, but this will be fun. Um, vision with and without a plumb line, very simply. Right? So imagine there's an imaginary wall next to me, or if you, you know, imagine that picture from that screen before. Um, but imagine this time, you can't actually tell with your human eye that it's crooked. 
And some walls, they look straight when you look at it, right? From certain angles, from certain views. But it's only when you put up something like a plumb line against it and you say, oh, yeah, actually, I can see now that that's not straight at all. It's actually kind of crooked. Um, but someone without a plumb line, without a standard, what do they see? See straight wall. And so that is the difference between vision with and without a plumb line. That is the difference between vision with and without God's standard. We need God's standard so that we can see what is right and what is wrong, what is good and evil. And when we see that, what does the Lord say? This is in 1 Peter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. Not sometimes, not just when I feel like it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Not just one or two people or just a couple people. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this not with pride, do this not with arrogance, but do this with gentleness and respect. And so we are right in the middle of it now. I started with this question, God is reviewing Israel. So we're definitely in the meat and potatoes of this. We're in the main course. What is God's standard is the question that we come to. God's standard is that all sinners deserve death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see that all humanity is bad. I think it doesn't take long for you to watch a few things on TV or social media, read the newspaper to see that there is so much death and evil in the world today. All humanity is bad. All our sinners all deserve death. What about Christians? Even Christians, there are no good Christians, only bad Christians saved by God's grace, only sinners saved by God's grace. Um, I had a friend of mine many years ago, didn't, it wasn't the pink t-shirt like this, it was a white one, um, but I think that is a good summary because there is nothing in humanity, there's nothing in of itself in humanity that can make itself be good. Uh, you might have seen this diagram in the horizontal way, it's used often with two, two cliffs, and there's a gap. Uh, I went with the, the vertical because I always think God is above us. Uh, but God is completely good. God is perfect. And all of humanity, as we've seen, are sinners. Right? There is nothing we can do in of ourselves to be good. The only way that we can reach this is a bridge. The only way is through the mediation of Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And so that is how humanity can be good. What about the last verse, though? Amos 7, verse 9. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. And if you would see, I have highlighted three places, those three places in blue, uh, because that is who will be destroyed. And for those who trust in these things, they will be destroyed. So... A little bit of analysis. What is high places? Anytime you see high places in the Bible, generally it's meaning altars, right? A place of sacrifice where they have animal sacrifices. But what's the context? Is Israel worshipping the triune God? Is, is Israel worshipping Yahweh at this point? No. So the high places, the altars here are actually to false idols. They're to false gods. Uh, the other alternate meaning of high places could be castle, right? Because where do you put a castle? Or a watchtower, you know, you put it on a hill. So you have visibility, you've got a vantage point. You can see people coming from afar. 
And what do castles represent? Physical protection, right? Protecting yourself, protecting your health, protecting your own life. Trusting in that will also get you destroyed. What about sanctuaries? Meant to be temples, right? Uh, And there are so many people today who you ask them, uh, you say, oh, are you religious? Oh, you believe in God? No, I'm not religious. Don't believe any of that. But, but I think I'm a spiritual person. And they'd be very happy to tell you about their spiritual beliefs and their values. But if you're trusting in that and on God, those two will be destroyed. And Jeroboam, so he, I think it's Jeroboam II. He's the king uh, of the northern kingdom at the time. Obviously represents royalty, human kings. So that's human powers, wealth, and fame. Those who trust in these things will be destroyed. And so I thought as I was reading through this, we kind of see it from a wider scope, that the three visions of Amos actually display kingdom history because you have the the same pattern. So Amos intercedes. He's the mediator, right? Uh, Before that, actually, there's, there's crisis, there's death. Amos intercedes. He's the mediator. God listens. He relents. But eventually, God will judge and destroy and rebuild. The first two ones, God relents, so there's no locusts, there's no fire. The third time, God does come. He does judge, he does destroy, and he does rebuild. What do I mean by kingdom history? Uh, I'm not a history teacher anymore, but I thought I'd put up a very, very non-technical timeline up on the screen. Um, I think it's quite an important timeline, though. I told you it's non-technical. So on the far left is the beginning and creation of the world, right? And you shift all the way. You've got Christ, obviously, coming and ascending. And then we have our time, and we have the end of the earth. And what happens here? The same thing. There is crisis. There is death. There is sin. But Jesus comes and intercedes for humanity. And his sacrifice, his death, is sufficient for all to receive grace. But eventually, God's justice will come. It will come eventually, and Jesus will return to judge all of humanity, and the world will be rebuilt. So I'd like to end where I begin. We're on the, we're on the home stretch now. How do you measure a good youth ministry? That's the question I was asking. What's the standard? And I think it is very, very clear what the standard is, which is that we and I must seek God's standard. Uh, and that it should be measured using the gospel. And so all those things I talked about before are not bad things. They're all actually good standards. To have a high attendance rate, excellent. Not going to complain about that. To have amazing, solid youth leaders and have lots of them, great. To have the support and feedback from parents, from elders and pastors, I love it. But if the gospel is not the fundamental priority and what I'm doing in youth ministry, then it needs to be rebuilt. And so, in the same way, our lives should be for Christ. I thought I would mention something very important before finishing, because we've been talking about plumb line and building, and most of the time when you build a wall, sometimes, yes, you could build walls just for themselves, but when you are using tools to build a wall, you're actually building a structure, you're building a house. And every building needs a cornerstone. Now, this is a quite an ancient, archaic term these days, but back in ancient times, before modern tools, every building needs a cornerstone. What is it? It is the first stone set in the construction of a building's foundation. All these other stones are set in reference to it, so it actually determines the position of the entire building. It shapes the whole building. 
And the cornerstone is key to keeping walls straight. Because the walls aren't straight, that's going to collapse. And so the cornerstone is placed above two walls to maintain them together and to avoid the building from falling apart. Um, from the little that I know, not an engineer of any kind, uh, but if you remove the cornerstone, the whole thing would collapse. The whole building would be destroyed. The cornerstone is vital. It's like life. And Jesus is the cornerstone. This is from Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so when we look at Amos and these nine verses, yeah, the beginning and the outset, it looks kind of crazy. There's a lot of things happening. There's locusts and fire and God's got a plumb line out. It might seem a little bit confusing, but at the core of it all, at the center, is actually a very simple message, I believe, which is that we are called to live in line with the gospel. And we do that by having vision for the eternal kingdom. So church, the question I would like to ask you this morning is, are you trusting these things? Your physical health, your spiritual values, your wealth, your relationships, family, friends, Because those who are proud before God will be destroyed. And we are not to be complacent and occupied by the world. Uh, and so, yeah, if I'm being honest, there are times where I do put my own wisdom and judgment, and I trust in some of these things before God, and I must repent and humble myself before Christ. And let's end with a little memory that I have, the conversation. It's more a question, actually. Um, and I think it was actually at a Bible study, a life group. Some people here in the crowd might remember this. Uh, I think it was um, Hayden Brown. It was Hayden before he, he left. And he asked us a question, which is, how often do you guys think about life after death? How often do you think about heaven? Um, I think it's a really good question that we should ask ourselves, because we don't have vision for the eternal kingdom, then are we really desiring the things of God? Or are we desiring the things of mankind? So we must live in line with the gospel and have vision for the eternal kingdom so that we can continue to live now in the present for the Lord. So church, I'd like to close in prayer. And I actually thought... uh, that was doing this sermon, yeah, that all that's been spoken about this morning ties in really well with the Apostles' Creed. However, Nathan already has read the Apostles' Creed and recited it, so I won't do it twice. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to, there is a, a song called The Creeds. Um, I'm trying to get the worship band to do it, but it's okay. I'm just going to sing the chorus. <laughs> um, and so if you know these lyrics, feel free to sing with me. Um, or if you would just like to close your eyes and bow your head in prayer, you may do that as well. So would you pray with me, church?
I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, when we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus, I believe in, I believe in life eternal, I believe in the virgin birth, I believe in the saints' communion and in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection when we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus. For I believe in the name of Jesus. Amen.